Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Hey podcast listeners, Eric Gurna here with a quick announcement before we get started. Many of you have given a lot of great feedback to the podcast, and I really appreciate all the support. I love doing this, uh, but one of the things I haven't really focused on is promoting the podcast and getting more people listening. One of the ways to do that is to be featured on iTunes, and one of the ways that can help us get featured on iTunes is to get more ratings and reviews on iTunes. So that's where you come in. If you could take just a moment of your time, open up iTunes, Search for Please Speak Freely and give us a quick rating or review. It would help me out a lot. I'd really appreciate it. And maybe we can get more people involved in the conversation. Thanks so much for your support. Uh, I also want to mention that the podcast is now also available on uh, Stitcher Radio and uh, for BlackBerry. So hopefully that'll also give more people access. Thanks again for your support and enjoy the show. So I'm here in... New York, New York, at the Development Without Limits office with Jennifer Davis, the co-founder and president of the National Center on Time and Learning. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, you know, what the National Center on Time and Learning is most known for, and I believe what you're most known for in the field, is sort of spearheading expanded learning time. Um, and I feel like that, that has become a catchphrase that's thrown around in lots of different contexts. So I'd love to hear from you what you see if you feel like defining expanded learning time, that's fine. But even beyond that, sort of what is your work? What is your personal mission in all this? Why, why are you the co-founder and president of the National Center on Time and Learning? Sure. In 1998, I was working in Boston for then Mayor Menino, current Mayor Menino, um, to launch a major initiative to expand after school and summer programming across the city. We had a very ambitious goal to serve every child in every neighborhood over time. And about uh, two years into it, um, one of the things that our research showed was that many of the children that needed the programs we were helping to launch the most weren't in those programs. Mm -hmm. And we were concerned about that and uh, began, uh, I launched my own uh, nonprofit organization when I left the mayor's office to uh, research, you know, what might other models be uh, to provide the kind of enriched learning and um, the variety of programming that many of the after-school programs were offering, uh, but in a way that more students and those particularly most in need were benefiting. And we started to research um, the movement uh, around the charter school sector and started to notice um, that, you know, they were starting their schools with significantly more time. So they just had a very different definition of what their school day was and what their offerings were going to be. And so over time, we began to develop um, an initiative in Massachusetts, uh, really in 2004, 2005, to see if we could help create a more integrated school model where community partners became a part of a redesigned school day, uh, but that all students in the school were staying um, roughly for a seven to eight hour day. Um, and they were all benefiting from the kind of enriched programming that only a few were getting in many of the schools and the programs that we were serving and supporting uh, prior to. That initiative came to be known in Massachusetts as the Expanded Learning Time Initiative, mm -hmm. and that's really um, kind of a little bit of the history behind the name and the initiative, and um, basically what we were trying to do was to expand and really broaden learning opportunities for students, but through a different mechanism, the after-school, in-school partnership work, uh, which I invested a lot of time and energy in, um, had taken us what we felt was just so far, and this we felt was the next um, iteration of that work, which was a much more integrated model. And were you aiming all of this work at a particular uh, demographic of young people or a particular demographic of community? All of our work has focused on high-poverty students and children uh, in urban districts mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. There are a few communities in Massachusetts 
uh, that are less uh, high poverty than the Bostons or the Worcesters or the Fall Rivers, but the majority of the students are well over 70% poverty. Mm-hmm. So I, the, that brings to mind a question for me, and I want to ask it without seeming like I'm being combative. Okay, so just know that I'm genuinely asking this question, not trying to make a point in the form of a question. Um, does does that mean that you believe that kids from economically poorer neighborhoods need to be in school longer hours than kids who are from middle class or upper middle class or wealthier neighborhoods? So wealthier in upper middle class communities invest in learning opportunities and they pay for it. They have the resources to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the children that, again, we were most concerned about didn't have those kind of resources and there weren't enough programs and they weren't um, engaging them enough. Um, and so what the reality is, is that many of the students that we're concerned about the most start school behind, and they never catch up. So without additional learning opportunities, without extra support, they're just not going to be on a path to success in high school, college, and beyond. And so, yes, the majority of our efforts are targeting students that don't have typically the kind of enriched learning opportunities beyond school to make sure that they get those kinds of opportunities in an integrated, newly designed school model. But in that in that comparison between the neighborhoods, communities with with more resources and um, poorer neighborhoods, the equivalent. So the economically, you know, the wealthier middle class neighborhoods, they have um, enrichment activities and other kinds of um, experiences that they pay for, right? Things like music, art, sports, all of that stuff. Um, in, but not everyone does those things, right? Only the ones who choose to sign up for it and pay for it do those things. And some kids don't do any of it. Some kids might do a little bit or some kids might do a lot. So wouldn't the equivalent of that in a poorer neighborhood be the kinds of after-school programs that you were working with in Boston originally where it's a, it's a choice that families are ma- or, or young people are making to do those things or to do other things, to to have free time or to do whatever they do? The majority of the schools and the districts across the country we work with, it is a choice for families. Families choose whether to send their children to a school with an expanded schedule or not. I mean, the reality is in most large urban districts now, you can make choices as families as to where your children go to school. And also the reality is that the waiting lists are very high. The parents want their children to be in these kinds of schools. And remember, what I'm talking about in the schools we're working to help redesign is arts and music and physical education, more recess time, longer lunches are are very much a part of those new designs. Mm -hmm. So students are getting a very diverse set of offerings, and that's the goal and that's the mission of our work. And again, I think it's fabulous uh, that parents can choose and in – most of the communities, if not all the communities we're working, uh, there are waiting lists to get into these schools. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how much energy goes into just different um, initiatives and movements and stuff within education. And something that I I read recently online when I was I was looking at this issue of expanded learning time was the notion that the issue isn't necessarily you want to have more time in the day because there's 24 hours in a day, right? It's what we do with the time when we're in, when we're engaged with school um, that the movement that ELT is concerned about. And within the regular school day, that's not been extended or expanded in any way. There's a lot of time spent typically on things that maybe aren't that productive. Um, And one comment that was made that sort of crystallized it for me was, if we took out the high-stakes testing pressures that teachers and principals and superintendents and most of all the kids and, and parents feel, and if we took out the um, huge amounts of homework that go along with that, the test prep practice that goes along with it, even just the days of testing themselves, if we took all those days out of it, we'd have all this time to do more music, art, 
recess and all the things that you're that you're talking about. So, so it's a choice to expand, to have more hours in the day to accommodate all of those things and the other things that you want to have in there. Um, how do you have you thought about that balance and that sort of investment of energy into putting more hours in the day versus possibly investing in changing the larger picture of what schools face? Well, so my early work in education reform was for President Clinton and Secretary Dick Riley in the launching of the standards movement in America. Um, I believe in the need to have more clarity about what students should know and be able to do and having accountability around that and driving resources based on the accountability to support kids most in need. So um, is there a question that's being debated right now about the magnitude and focus on high-stakes testing and assessments? Yes. Is that a worthy conversation and is that an important issue for debate and discussion, I do agree. Uh, but I don't think that's so much of the real challenge. I think that um, ideally we want all of our children to excel in the core academic subjects and have access to this broader set of educational opportunities. And it is my belief, even if you were to narrow out some of the testing, uh, that a majority of students that live and grow up and are experiencing poverty um, are going to need a, more time for learning. And one of the things we do when we first start working with schools is we help them understand how are you using your current time? Are you wasting some of your time? And inevitably, decisions are made about how to strengthen the six hours before they add the two extra hours. We also know from our important report entitled Time Well Spent, where we analyzed 30 high-performing, high-poverty, expanded-time schools across America, that those schools that excel at such high rates for kids use every minute strategically and well. But they're eight-hour school days, um, typically, and longer school years as well. And so um, I understand the point you're trying to make. I just don't believe um, that that is you know, the most important issue. I think the most important issue is that we need to support kids with extra time, extra learning, extra enrichment throughout their entire pipeline from early childhood to and through college. I mean, that's just the reality for kids um, that, again, are in circumstances where they don't have the kinds of networks and supports uh, readily available to them. So I hadn't actually heard about that, what you just described around the, in your work with schools before you um, help them to see how to use, like, say, two additional hours or however much more time that the school day is going to have, that you work with them on um, making better use of the time that they, they currently have. Um, what, kind of, what does that work consist of? How do you, make, how do you help them um, improve the way they use their I mean, it's, it's funny because it's, it's a framing it in the context of how they use their time. It's a little bit of a false uh, construct because it's, it's really – it's not so much just looking at what they do with their time. It's looking about looking at how they engage young people, right. what's their practice, how do they improve their practice. And well, we've developed some tools that we're refining. Um, one is called the Quality Time Audit that um, helps teams from schools analyze – how much time they're dedicating to each subject, how much time they're dedicating to, for example, passing time in the hallways, how much time they're dedicating to things like recess and lunch and so forth. And some schools have made very simple changes that have had dramatic impacts on time. And those simple changes might be anything from reorganizing the structure of the school so that classes are closer together, um, it might mean that they think differently about, um, you know, when lunch takes place and, uh, you know, a whole series of other issues. It might mean that they really hadn't realized how much they had cut a certain subject because they had never looked at it holistically. It's a whole range of things. And what mm -hmm. we try to do is help encourage teams from schools to themselves uncover the strengths and weaknesses. Now, we also are developing and refining a tool that looks more at classroom time, you know, what's happening in the classroom, how are students being engaged or not. 
Um, you know, those are more complex analyses uh, that schools are doing. Um, and, you know, that's complicated because that's the guts of teaching and learning, you know, what's happening in the classroom. But I guess what I'm just saying to you is that, you know, we don't believe just adding time is the answer. It's not. It's mm-hmm. being thoughtful about it. It's how your current time is being used. We don't encourage schools that are dysfunctional to add more time. They have other things they need to address before they can add time and do right by children. Um, so it needs to be done thoughtfully. It needs to be done carefully. Um, we encourage, as schools think about moving in this direction, a year-long planning process mm-hmm. um, to really help think through all of the opportunities that more time allows and, and to step back and say, let's throw out the schedule. Let's throw out how we've been doing things. Let's think about how can we staff our school differently. That might mean bringing community partners onto the team. It might mean you know, just thinking very differently about class sizes, about individualizing supports for students, small group instruction. You might mean, you know, many, many things are considered during that planning phase. But we encourage that kind of creativity. And that's really important because educators very often do not have time or the luxury, frankly, to really step back and say, you know, how can we do a better job supporting our children and our students? And um, and so this is not a, a simple reform. It's very complicated. It's very hard. There are schools that have not succeeded at it. Um, and there are schools that are excelling at tremendous rates and kids are thriving. And, you know, obviously we're working to make more of those kinds of schools, you know, mm-hmm. possible. And and you just sort of mentioned the 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 big, I think, criticism that is generally thrown around and maybe oversimplified um, around ELT and, and, and your work, which is, well, more, more of the same isn't going to do it, right? That's what you hear again and again um, when people talk about this. Well, if they're not you know, engaging young people in a rich way with the time that they have, why is more time going to um, – why is that going to do anything more? Or, or better, and I think that I think that that can be an oversimplified critique. But I think there's a there's a much deeper, more complex critique sort of embedded in that um, because it seems to me like if we're working within the same construct of our of objectives, things like the high high stakes testing, things like grade level reading, um, even just keeping kids in grades first, second, third, fourth grade, um, and assessing using um, test scores and grades as the primary means of assessing, if we're keeping within that construct, then our options for how we change the pedagogy are are really limited. And so the the question around what are kids doing in the classroom or what are teachers doing in the classroom, what's going on in the classroom, um, and how they're using their time, um, that, I guess I want to say, the example that's often held up are KIPP and other charter schools that say we're having success um, with improving achievement as measured by tests, and we do it in part by putting more time in. But there's a whole lot of people in the field that critique the whole thing and say that's not even a good measurement stick, even if that even if you can say that and even if it's true according to your data that the whole thing's not a good measuring stick. So are we really improving engagement and engagement being what really leads to actual genuine learning as opposed to the kind of learning where you put it on the test and then you forget it? Are those conversations happening in that year of planning? Are they happening in your conversations with your team at the Center on Time and Learning or with your partner organizations? I just can't tell how much this work is within that const- that, that sort of paradox and how much you all who are working on this are willing to look at other frameworks? Well, a couple things. First of all, I think that um, it's not true if people believe that students in the KIPP schools I visited aren't getting a broader set of educational experiences, whether they're in the orchestra, um, the school that I'm very involved with in Massachusetts, uh, students travel to Utah and Uh, all kinds of really interesting um, opportunities to really broaden their educational experiences and beliefs and understandings. Uh, 
to uh, the very nurturing environment, uh, the athletic teams that were cre- that have been created. Um, so I do think that some of the high-performing charters and KIPP is signaled out often mm-hmm. are not um, understood uh, comprehensively. And, of course, not every KIPP or not every high-performing charter is the same. Sure. So there are some high-performing charters you walk into, and it is very regimented, and there isn't a lot of uh, maybe creativity, right? And there are others you walk into and – there's a true, you know, focus on the joy factor and, and that engaged learning. And so I think it's a little unfair to mm-hmm. kind of pigeonhole charters or in, in one bucket. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to start with that. Yeah. Um, but I want to go back to the more of the same situation or question. Um, two schools that we've worked with the longest, um, really since 2005, um, that both were chronically underperforming, the Cuss Middle School and the Edwards Middle School, one in Fall River, one in Boston, um, where the teams from those schools and their partners truly did step back and say, we can't do more of the same. We have to think differently. We have to design a school schedule that is going to more individualize how we approach each child uh, that they get the kind of support uh, from the right kind of adult at the right time during the course of the day and the year, um, that there are engaged learning, whether it be in science or uh, whatever subject it might be, uh, that really keeps middle schoolers in school and engaged and, and wanting to um, continue to learn and, and grow. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are examples uh, in the traditional urban district school construct that we've experienced and documented and seen. Um, one school that we've been working with, Orchard Gardens, um, a group of first graders were just at the White House with President Obama this week um, because of just some of the really interesting work they were doing in the area of poetry, and they oh. recited a poem. It was the cutest thing. But Part of, you know, what these schools that we've worked closely with have done is, you know, they really are working and creating a school outside of the box, you know. Now we don't have enough of those, right? We mm-hmm. don't have enough schools that have taken that year to be thoughtful about thinking differently, engaging the faculty, parents, and community partners in that process, and then coming out on the other side with a bold, creative, innovative, engaging education opportunity for kids um it's hard work and we gotta create more educators um excited and engaged in doing that work um and uh you know there's a lot that needs to be done to move more schools in that direction but i know it's possible because i've walked into those schools and i've Mm -hmm. seen them and and a lot of this you know the the issue of scale always comes up around you know we we have these shining examples of what's possible in certain places. Um, and then how do we grow that? If it's something that we, you know, really value, how do we grow it? Um, and that's related to another sort of, I guess, uh, category of questions or ideas that I had in mind, um, when talking to you. Um, and I want to sort of, so it's, it's a little bit of switching gears, but it's really quite closely connected. I want to, um, frame this that I got a lot of my preparation for this already done for me, on the Washington Post blog, the answer sheet, um, uh, they had a whole thing around, you know, the issue of time and school and after school. And uh, you and Jody Grant had a whole, from the After School Alliance had a whole sort of back and forth. It was really compelling to me because, um, you know, as you know from the work together that we we did together a couple of years ago with the Schools at Washington conference um, in in Washington State, I am interested in. Um, bringing different perspectives to light. So that conference was um, you came out and Hillary Sammons from Providence, Rhode Island um, came out to co-present on extended learning time and, and to present some things that you had in common and some views that you had different. And it wasn't exactly a debate, but, um, but it was different perspectives. And at that same conference, we had a debate around measuring outcomes and the importance of measuring outcomes from two people who had very different viewpoints. Um, and I think that there's lots of people with very different viewpoints in our field and in the larger field of education, um, and but we don't often get a chance to really hear how those things can bounce off each other and can inform each other and can also just compete for for people's um, you know attention and energy. 
Um, and so th- I thought that was a, it was a great forum um, that, that you all had. Um, so I want some, I say some of my work was done for me because, you know, I was able to go through that and, and call some things and say, Oh, that's an interesting thing. I wonder what, you know, Jennifer Davis would, how she would respond to that. Um, so there's a few things that came up on there that I want to sort of, um, roll by you and, and, and see what you think. But with this issue of scale, um, can you explain to me a little bit before we get into scale? The, the context for this is that new um, potential waivers to No Child Left Behind or education, what is it called? Elementary Secondary Education Act, because we're not supposed to call it No Child Left Behind anymore. Um, <laughs> what um, waivers proposed by um, the Secretary of Education and the President um, were given, states were given the opportunity to request waivers to sort of get out of certain aspects of No Child Left Behind policies. And one of them um, led to the state's ability or leads to the state's ability to use 21st Century Community Learning Center funds for things other than after school or before school or summer programs, including um, some um, services that may go directly to schools or school districts for expanding um, their school day or expanding their school, extending the school year. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. Is there, any, is there, is there part of that that you would want to sort of make clearer um, because I'm not, policy is not necessarily my specialty. Well, sure. Let me just back up just for a minute. Um, the 21st Century Program um, was really launched and grew significantly when I worked for Secretary Riley and President Clinton uh, mm-hmm. in Washington. And the purpose of that program, of course, was to expand learning opportunities and broaden opportunities for students Uh, during the hours when schools were not in session. That was during a period of time where the standard American school schedule was not being questioned. It was uh, just the way it always has been and presumably the way it always will be. There were no other models to look to. And what was important is that we had safe, engaging learning environments for more children, particularly in, um, you know, the large urban districts in America. Um, A lot's changed since then. A lot's changed since that program was first launched. A very critical um, evaluation came out that Mathematica conducted that basically showed that the program, even though it was an education program, wasn't having the educational impact. And that concerned the Bush administration. It concerned um, uh, you know, the, the Clinton administration. And it certainly has concerned those who came in um, under President Obama and the Duncan administration. And so over the years, there's been an emphasis to try to strengthen the 21st century program, and that's been very important, and it's been very exciting, actually, to see, uh, because I was you know, there at the very beginning, and then to see the strengthening of the program over time, these intermediaries, one of which I ran in Boston, being formed mm-hmm. uh, to strengthen and support uh, programming, to find training, to help build partnerships between schools and community organizations, the integration of those. There's been a a vast improvement with regard to uh, the integration of after school and in school, you know, really in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, But really what's happened since then is uh, a couple of things. One, a concern that students um, need more educational support in order to succeed in this very competitive, internationally connected uh, economic condition and climate. Uh, Two, that um, we now have models of high-performing, high-poverty schools that we didn't have 15 years ago. And so how can we really create more of those kinds of schools so that more and more kids are prepared for success beyond uh, high school uh, in higher education? And so the Obama administration made a decision uh, that they wanted resources to be dedicated initially uh, through a proposed bill called the TIME Act Um, to support the creation in standard district schools of expanded time. And uh, as the policy agenda unfolded, um, the Obama Obama administration made a decision that they wanted to also provide flexibility in the 21st century program that did not allow, even though in many cases these programs were operating in schools – the money could not be used to change the school schedule. It could only be used for non-school time. Mm-hmm. That didn't seem to make a lot of sense. 
to the Obama administration and, frankly, to me. Why should there be a limit with regard to the number of students that can be served? And and why can it be that the schedule itself could be changed in order that all students have those opportunities versus just a subset of students? as a part of an after-school or summer program. So that policy barrier didn't make sense to this administration, and they made a decision that they were going to move changes to it through a variety of policy vehicles. And the one that's um, actually now being implemented is the waiver option. Uh, and states can choose as to how they want to use those resources. And, mm-hmm. of course, in many cases, what's going to happen over time is that many communities will continue their after-school programming and s- invest in summer programming. But there will likely be a subset of schools where they're going to want to invest in changing and redesigning the school schedule for all students. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, it it comes down in, in part to how much funding is available overall, right? Because if the if the funding, if the pot remains the same as it was, and they, there's the possibility of doing more things with it, um, I think you know the many in the 21st century community learning center world see that as a net cut to after-school programs. It's not a net cut to children being served. That's where I get concerned about the points that they are making. We're mm-hmm. talking about students being served just through a different vehicle and setting. Right. I mean, I think that w- what I hear the most is that if if it's the schools who are deciding what to do with it for the the regular school day, rather than community-based organizations being a primary partner in providing the program um, as a as a separate but supplemental program to the regular school day, that those shining examples that we see that are held up as the um, role model programs or schools won't be what we see everywhere, that it will be, here's a little bit more for my budget, I can extend this, I can make the school day a little longer, I can use it for this, I can use it for that, but that it's not going to be um, uh, a replication of those same... So do you think that local communities should be able to make those decisions for themselves? Do I think... The lo- which which decisions? How to use the money, mm-hmm. you mean? Because um, that's well, basically what the Obama administration is saying. Well, they're saying that the, the states first get to decide whether or not their local communities will be able to make those decisions. Is that right? States and then, but, you know, states could choose not to move in that direction. And then local communities could choose not to apply. It's going to be still a very flexible set of resources. The the devil's in the details with that, though, because if if a state goes ahead and says they want to be able to use 21st century money for a regular school day, um, and then it's not it's for all, a regular school day. It's okay, for an for, expanded for an expanded school, school day. day. Um, if they decide that, it's sort of in how they do the procurement. They, that sort of determines whether local communities will decide to apply for that or not. Because if schools, if there are, if the RFP is written in such a way that it encourages schools to do that, then they will. It's just like um, in 21st century competitions, you get more points if you have certain things on there. So if you're going to run a high school program, you get some more points or if you're, you know, things like that. So then there's a huge increase in the number of high school programs who apply because it's schools and districts who are making the decision. They can decide which schools to include. They want to increase their chances of getting funded. And so it, it, sometimes I think the fact that there is technically an option doesn't mean that it's really a choice if the RFP is written in such a way as to strongly encourage um, those schools and communities to make that choice. I just think, I guess what I'm saying is there are going to be very few states, I believe, um, that will narrow the option to just expanded learning time. I think that there is going to be a variety of options available for districts and schools to apply for Expanded learning time will be one. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of aspects of this that I want to try to dig into a little bit. One um, actually comes directly from Carla Sanger of LA's Best. And the reason I can quote her is that she uh, put it in the comments to the Washington Post blog. So I'm just going to quote her from that. She said a, a bunch of things, um, but I want to just jump right to it. She talks about the cost per student of implementing the longer school day versus the cost of after-school programs. 
Um, and she says, uh, uh, where am I? Based on costs associated with the Massachusetts ELT initiative, for each school that eliminates its after-school program and instead uses 21st Century Community Learning Center funding to extend the school day to 3.30 or 4 o'clock, six other communities with after-school and summer learning programs supported by 21st Century will lose funding and be left with no expanded learning opportunities for kids. We can run six after-school sites for the price of extending the school day on one campus. Is that a fair argument? No. Why not? Because it's a very cost-effective model if you're expanding the school day, depending on how you do it. Um, it's all, you know, many of the schools are being incredibly creative about the integration of their community partners, the use of technology, um, staggering teacher schedules, a variety of things. And so she is kind of making up numbers um, that I don't believe are accurate or really based on um, true truth, to be honest with you. I mean, the Wallace Foundation not long ago came out with a study on the cost of after-school programs, and it was significantly higher than 1300 per child in Massachusetts. It was between 2000 and something like almost $5,000 based on, um, you know, the, 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 the type of program we're talking about. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I just feel like some of the numbers that have been thrown around are, are just not at all based in reality. It's hard for me to, to defend or speak to that too much because I'm not – I don't have um, a good coherent expertise of, of any of that, of the costs of things. But what I – where my interest personally really is and my fear and concern with this is um, that for me, the reason that drew – what drew me to after school is that it seems like it's the place in public education where you can focus on – individualized learning, where you can focus on project-based learning, um, where you can focus on um, putting young people in the driver's seat in their own learning, that the after-school sort of pedagogy generally, not entirely, but generally, is really focused on putting young people at the center and finding out what those young people you work with are really interested in, what drives them, what they care about, and building your program around that. I have not seen uh, a public school that's um, doing that. I've seen a couple of schools that give some rhetoric to it, but I haven't actually seen it in practice. Um, there's many more schools out there that I haven't seen than schools that I've seen, but I've got to visit a lot of schools around the country. So I have that, that's where my impression is formed from. So my concern with it is, does this um, drive the community organizations who are um, leaders in the field of after-school learning, does it drive them away from that kind of philosophy and approach and towards figuring out how they can fit into a school district's plan um, to extend the school day rather than focus on the values that they come from? Well, again, I, I, I just need to say several things. First of all, no one is arguing that after-school programs aren't really important in communities, okay? After-school programs and summer programs are very important to the fabric of, of all communities across this country, and, and they need to continue and, and hopefully uh, thrive and strengthen and, and so forth. My point here is that states have a constitutional responsibility to provide a child a quality education, and that is not happening in too many places in this country. And so some of us who are committed to that goal, that civil rights agenda, believe strongly that we have to do whatever we can to improve those educational opportunities. Many people that I talk to from the after-school sector seem to have given up on mm. public schools. Mm -hmm. Okay, We cannot give up on public schools. We have to create, strengthen, and expand the good schools that are serving students in this country. And, you know, that's where I really differ. I mean, I understand why many funders, for example, are just committed to after-school programs because they're so frustrated with the urban schools that they don't see that they're improving or making a difference. Um, and that's all well and good, and that's really important to continue to invest in these uh, programs that are outside of the school context. Um, but what my organization is dedicated to is trying to bring some of that 
wonderful, engaged learning into schools to try to make them a better learning environment, a broader learning environment for children. And, you know, that's, that's where we're committed to. That's what we feel is necessary. And, you know, this administration believes uh, that to be the case as well. And, but if, you, if you're dedicated to bringing that, that kind of engaged learning into public schools, I mean, do you, do you really not think that the, the, the toxic pressures from high-stakes testing and the teaching to the test that that creates is – like an, a massive obstacle towards creating that kind of engaged learning in schools? It's a massive obstacle in a traditional school schedule because that's what's happened in this country since No Child Left Behind passed is the narrowing of the curriculum to mm-hmm. ELA and math primarily, cuts to other core subjects, social studies and science, and certainly to the arts and music and drama and all the things that engaged me when I was a kid in school, right? So... It's not going to be realistic in the short term to say we're going to get rid of high-stakes testing, and now that the Common Core is being implemented, there's going to be more of an emphasis, I think, on ensuring that more kids reach those high standards. And only with more time are students going to get that broader set of educational opportunities that they deserve. And we believe... Strengthened, redesigned, expanded schools is an important model, but certainly after-school and summer programs are bringing that kind of creativity uh, to kids too. Mm -hmm. But by the way, you've talked a lot to me today about the poor quality of schools. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of poor quality after-school programs out there. Yes, indeed. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) You know. We, we've got to th- the reason yeah. I always come back to states have a constitutional responsibility to ensure that kids get a quality education. Yeah. You know, we have got to put all the pressure on that we can to make sure that they're delivering. Yeah. And to just pile on all the focus and support into programs that aren't school, it seems to me, is skirting one of the most fundamental challenges we have in the society. Sure, but no one's arguing that, that, uh, Everyone, we should take all the money that's going to schools and give them to after-school programs. It's the opposite that's being argued. That the money that's going to after-school programs, some of it should be going to schools instead. A different kind of expanded school. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I will say that when I read through the Washington Post blog comments, what I was left with was while I agreed with a lot of the comments that were on there that were sort of like defending after school, I also was left with sort of a bad taste because it feels like we're defending an industry rather than um, advocating for good practice. And so, I, and I completely agree that the, um, the quality of after school is hugely diverse and there's a lot of poor quality after school going on. It's just the the thing that I am so am, am stuck on is that if we don't change the framework of how we define success, that I don't see how more time will do it because the toxic pressures that high stakes testing brings on, I don't think that it's possible to just have more time to do other things as well, but still do those things because what I see in the kids that I know and the teachers that I know even more is that it's so demoralizing and so disengaging that the engagement level for other things is the potential to do other to do good even if you have more time um, is so diminished. I don't mean it's impossible. You, know, you can't do other good things, but it's so diminished by this huge centerpiece of the school, which is you know preparing kids to su- succeed on tests. And so I just I think that if energy was put into shifting that, that it would have a huge impact on exactly the goals that your center has. Right. But I mean, one of the whole purposes behind the Common Core and certainly in states uh, that have been very thoughtful about their reforms, it's not just about the tests because the tests are aligned to to knowledge that students need to succeed, good writing and good computation skills and reading skills. I mean, so 
um, you know, you're making an assumption, and you keep using the word toxic, you're making an assumption that all testing is bad because students actually aren't gaining skills um, by preparing for those tests. The whole purpose of the standards movement was not for rote learning. It was to help put in place a quality approach to defining what students needed to know and be able to do in the core subjects. And so certainly in states like Massachusetts, you are not wasting your time preparing for the MCAS because the MCAS provides a fundamental baseline of reading, writing, and calculation skills. So I just think you're going a little overboard. Now, should we over time be able to cut back maybe on how how often students are tested? Probably yes, right? Or um, the emphasis? Probably yes. Now, we're going to be broadening the subject and the, and the content areas. There's a new focus on science, of course, um, coming up. But, you know, so I'm not saying there isn't a challenge around that. And certainly if you look at high-performing countries like Finland, you know, standardized tests are really nowhere on the agenda, right? right. So... And they're very high-performing, and students particularly across the socioeconomic board. So so certainly there's a point, and I I hear your point, um, but, um, you know, over time, and there certainly has been a lot of movement, I think, in the right direction to make sure that what's tested is actually our our valuable skills. Okay, well, I mean, we're... I may be going overboard. I think we have to agree to disagree that we've been going in the right direction um, with, in, in terms of that the tests are becoming you know, better at testing sk- the actual skills. Um, but I, you know, I'm the first one to admit that I could be going overboard. I'm certainly stuck on that as, a, um, as what I see as a um, not insurmountable obstacle, but something that absolutely has to shift in order for anything, any of these other things to shift. Um, but that being said, um, I know that you have a plane to catch, and um, I want to give – I've thrown a lot at you, and I really appreciate your willingness to, to engage in the conversation. And I'll, I do, in closing, want to give you the opportunity. Is there anything um, – Either is there anything that we missed that you wanted to say, or is there any ways um, – you, know, you said that I'm going overboard. Have I, is any of the arguments that I'm making – are any of the arguments that I'm making or questions that I've given you unfair, or is there things that you'd like to have a chance to talk about more if we had more time? I just want to kind of give you the open forum to, to have that mic if you, if you choose to. I mean, I think that the, the challenge is that – People seem to come to this discussion from one side or another, and I've been on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran a large two to six after school initiative for Mayor Menino and worked hard, and we doubled the number of kids in programs um, and um, you know learned a lot and uh, it was a fabulous experience and um, Remember, you know, walking out of some of those schools and programs um, with the question of why are only 40, 50 kids in a 500-child school getting the benefit of mm-hmm. the, these opportunities? Yeah. And, you know, although not every school that we've worked with, of course, have has done as excellent a job of ensuring these broader engaged learning opportunities – it has been a component of every initiative and every school that we've worked with. It's not just about adding more ELA and math. It's about broadening enrichment opportunities for kids. It's been a part of our model from the very beginning. It continues to be in all of our national work. We believe strongly that you need to provide students a broad educational experience for them to be engaged and to be prepared for the future. Um, and, you know, the other goal of our work is to also give teachers additional time to plan and meet and strengthen their uh, teaching approaches. And so um, I just feel like not enough people in the youth development world have been exposed to, to schools that are doing this work really well. And I find that's you know, unfortunate mm-hmm. um, because they'll continue to have a, a fairly, um, I feel, limited perspective on what's possible. 
many of the nonprofit groups that we've worked with who then went from after-school programming to deeply partnering with schools um, Mm -hmm. have had fundamental shifts in their own thinking and their business models and have found real success in that work. And again, not enough have seen that and understand how to do it and that it's possible. And I think until those kinds of things change, we're going to continue to have these kinds of debates and discussions. But I think what's uh, most important here is that it isn't about who is delivering the services. It isn't about the industry, as you mentioned. It shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. This should be about how do we prepare children for success in their life. And they do need both the academic skills and the broader skills that help them navigate Mm -hmm. this really complicated world we're living in. And... um, that can come from more than one place, but great schools, um, thoughtfully uh, designed, can certainly and are doing um, providing those kind of services for kids, and that's Thanks. what we want to see more. Yeah, and you know the amazing thing to me about working in this field is that um, even if you even if you sit down with someone and you don't agree about a lot of things, there's a something fundamental that I think almost 100% of the people I've met working with in this field do agree on. And that's what you just described that in the end that we are all um, going shooting for the same goals and that we are dedicating our lives to improving, you know, the quality of life for young people and all the things that you just described. And so I really, I do appreciate that. And even if we don't agree on everything, I can definitely see that, you know, the genuine dedication to that. And I appreciate it. And um, thanks for being on, please speak freely. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 